Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwall Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Okay, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Regenerative by Design podcast. I'm really excited about our session today because we've got somebody joining us that I have been loving watching her journey, and she's an incredible woman, and her name is Maggie Sandowski, and she is the president and founder of 8-Track Foods, so welcome, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you could join us because, boy, when you're running a startup CPG company, there's really not a lot of time to cut out and do these kind of things, so I, I really appreciate it. No and it's problem. Monday. I know. And it's Monday. And I don't know how you find the time, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is my creative outlet because I love people and I love people who are innovative and doing cool things. And it just makes me that much more motivated to dig in when I get back to work and up my game a little bit. And, and just you feel like you've got a team instead of just finding this, you know, um, startup world alone, which I, I have an amazing team, so I'm really lucky, but sometimes it can be a lonely place being a founder, don't you think? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it is very lonely. I think, I mean, just, um, regardless of size, it's very hard. It's a very unique journey. So it's super cool. And you're a fascinating person. I have to say, I, I hope we can spend a little bit of time where you can tell our listeners about your story because you are a founder that comes from a very fascinating background that most founders that I know don't have. And you are an expert in transforming food categories. I mean, that's, you know, as a food scientist, that's a really incredible background. So I'm hoping we can start out today and you can tell our listeners about, you know, how you became a food scientist. Like, where did you grow up? Did you always want to be in food? Like, let's take the deep dive here. You really want to hear the whole backstory of my life? Let's go there. Yeah, I mean, I always loved food, but I'm truth be told, I always loved being a scientist and like tinkering with things in the kitchen and making messes more than I enjoyed the actual <laughs> process of cooking. So it was more around the experimentation. But it led me to, you know, going to college in chemistry, and I really thought I was going to be a dentist. And okay. sort of freaked out when I realized at a certain point in time that I was going to be looking in people's mouths and Full-time. decided that. Yeah, so I decided that maybe I would be better focused at, at the food part of it. And so I took my chemistry and applied that and got my degree in food science. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, really yeah, so food science, um, that food science is a huge field that most people don't know really exists is what I've found. Um, you know, there's whole schools that just focus on food science as like a, a big interdisciplinary, you know, all the layers from plant to animal to agriculture, manufacturing, preservation, refrigeration, even dairy is its own thing. So 
you know, how did you get involved with, with food science and what was it about it that really made you excited about it? Yeah. So it's funny that you asked that. I always say that a food scientist is the most under-marketed profession in the world. Um, but everything you eat is touched <laughs> by a food scientist. I agree. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. One of the most important jobs we have is to keep your food supply safe. And yeah. I was at Ohio State, the Ohio State University, and they have a really strong like agriculture um, program. And within that, they do a lot of dairy and meat science. And, and I got mm-hmm. involved with that a lot because of my chemistry background. Mm-hmm. But I loved the idea of taking that science and applying it to food. So understanding why your cheese melts, why, yeah. you, you know, how you make cottage cheese or why your toast browns. So it was more the understanding of that. Yeah. And that's what really led me kind of down the path of developing plant-based foods, ironically. Yeah. So, um, and remind me, which city in, in Ohio were you live? Where, where were you in Ohio? I was just in Cleveland and then also in St. Clairsville near Wheeling, West Virginia. So I just was in Ohio all week last week. So I'm kind of fascinated by Ohio. It's a cool place. It is. So I grew up in Illinois in um, the suburbs of Chicago, but then went to Ohio State and that was in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance to visit Columbus, but now I want to go back because it seems there's a lot of fun uh, food culture in Ohio. I mean, we were really impressed in Cleveland, like went to some really cool restaurants and fun coffee shops and I mean, it, it just had a really thriving culinary scene where we were. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And so it, with food science, um, you know, the plant-based world is getting a ton of attention right now because of all the innovation that's going into plant-based. I mean, it's really just revolutionized for so long. You know, we had things like the classics like Tofurky. And I do know Seth, the founder of Tofurky, and he's an incredible guy. But, you know, you talk to him and I remember when Tofurky came out, I think it was 1994, 1995. We had it for Thanksgiving because we were like, what is this? This is so cool. Yeah. And of course, it was the 90s and we were all vegetarians and it was tofu or bust. I mean, there just really wasn't a whole lot out there. And now we have this whole huge category that's transforming and a lot of, you know, philosophical back and forth with the whole plant based meats and the analogs and you know, being in the regenerative agriculture side of things, like there's a lot of pushback on, you know, what they call fake meats and the Franken meats world. But then there's a lot of utility for things that create analogs that are plant-based and have fiber and protein and don't require the needs of an animal-based input. And I'm really curious to know how you feel about this whole thing. I mean, you're actually someone who really knows this world. Weren't you named like the top plant-based innovator? Um, at one point? Yeah. Yeah. It, this is one of those like odd questions for me to ask. And I feel like I have to kind of finish my story around Ohio State to, yeah. get, to give you the story. So, you know, we were a pretty big dairy college and we did a lot around that. But um, our team thought it would be funny to do kind of like a tofu cutie at the time, you know, doing like a tofu yeah. ice cream rather than doing your traditional dairy ice cream. Well, that project led me to my very first job, which was Worthington Foods which is Morningstar Farms, um, now owned by Kellogg. But at the time, it was one of the very few vegetarian um, food manufacturers in the country. And so I learned there how to create meat analogs and how to do... uh, My very first product to market was Morningstar Farms Chicken Nugget. So, you know, Mm -hmm. learning all of those pieces of like putting together an analog and what structured proteins look like and how to extrude proteins and how to use... um, systems. And so 
having that background had led me to a career in developing plant-based alternatives. And I have worked on several brands within the space and like to think over the course of my 20 plus years doing it, that it's evolved the plant-based industry. And so when you ask me how I feel about it kind of today, it's, Mm -hmm. I guess when I first started, it was more around like, if you were vegetarian, you could be included in the party. Like you could have, you know, like you could have your backyard burger and you could have Mm -hmm. like your your chicken nuggets if you were, you know, kind of going out on a limb and having something. But the main focus was always supposed to be kind of a, a plant-based rich diet. And there weren't a whole lot of options for, you know, we had black bean burgers and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, some tempeh. But there weren't a whole lot of options. So it yeah. was kind of a, a treat to have those things. Um, Truly. But it yeah. was, like you said, it was the 90s. Everyone was like vegetarian. It was no fat, low fat. So they yes. were pretty, you know, um, rounded. And I think over the course of the development in the industry, there's been kind of, a lot of things that have gone away from primarily health and plant-based nutrition. So it's not to say that like all fake meat is bad. It's just, we have to be careful in our, how we, how we word that to consumers because you can't eat a plant-based burger full of um, fat and sodium and think that that's healthy. Um, right. Right. So I think there's a, there is a disconnect between what's healthy for the planet and what's healthy for us. Yeah, so I, I I love that you bring up this notion of what's actually healthy for you and this new plant-based movement. We've seen this explosion of of really junk foods, like the things that we've already known we shouldn't eat a lot of, but now that we've put this new plant-based spin on them, it's almost like we've given a whole consumer movement permission to like eat chicken nuggets every day because, oh, look, you're doing something good for the planet but it's still a chicken nugget. It's still a junk food, still probably not something that you should eat every day. So how, how has this, you know, kind of pushed you to where you've become because you've had this incredible background in, in classic food science and innovative food science. And then you founded a group and remind me of the name architect. Um, nutri- Oh, the culinary architect. Culinary yeah, architects. That's the coolest name. And, and, so if you could tell us a little bit about that as well, because you really are an innovator. And I think it lays the path of where you are now, which we're leaving that as like a teaser. We're going to, the, the, the audience is going to yeah. be excited when they find out what you're working <laughs> on with 8-Track Foods. <laughs> I love the teaser mentality. But yeah, I think the the culinary architects I really founded, I was the director of strategic innovation for ConAgra Foods and really mm-hmm. left there because a lot of the times great ideas kind of get morphed when it gets back to the scientist, you know, like marketing comes up with this, like, Hey, we want to make this cool product. And then, you know, the scientists get a hold of it and we turn it from a sphere into a box and it, it doesn't really make it in the market. So I felt like there was a, a real disconnect between marketing and R and D. And I've always kind of aligned myself kind of as the widget that can speak both languages and really mm-hmm take those insights and then turn them into actionable products. And through that work at the Culinary Architects, I really focus on technical strategy and making sure that we can keep the products moving down the pipeline and create new products um, that consumers will love and enjoy. And so I always see the world just a little bit differently than most people because I, I have so many different touch points and you know I understand how to take something and create it through manufacturing and, and what those ingredients really in, entail and how, mm-hmm. how that all kind of 
structures to put together the whole product. Um, so layering all those pieces together really gives mm-hmm. the products I've launched an edge, I think, rather than just looking at it through one lens. I, I see it through multiple to see where there could be faults. Um, but through that, I've done tons of work in the plant-based move. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, it just seen where it's, where it's gotten to at the plant-based food expo. Did you, were you there in New York and at the Javits center? No, no, I, I didn't I, see you. And it was one of those things after the fact, I'm like, Oh, I should have reached out to Maggie and see to see if you were there. But, um, we ended up having a booth there and it was, it was interesting because our product line at Snacktivist is naturally vegan. I mean, we make like waffles that are vegan, you know, those yeah. kind of things. And so we thought, Oh, plant-based food expo will be great. But Honestly, like almost everything there was an analog of either a meat substitute, a cheese substitute or a meat, or like a milk substitute. So it was interesting because people would end up over at our booth and they're like, oh, my gosh, finally, just food. Like, I really <laughs> want just a brownie bite that's vegan or I want like a waffle that's vegan. But everyone who was there, like the buyers, they were all looking for the latest, greatest analogs, like of some animal product that is now not an animal product you know, like a chicken nugget or whatever. So it was literally the chicken nugget expo, um, the faux chicken nugget expo. So how well, I like to say I made the first one 25 years ago. <laughs> so now, um, but it is, yep. it's so true. The analog industry has just been crazy and it's, it's just, and I know how to do it. Like as a scientist, I know the power of it and what it takes yeah. at a certain point in time, we have to focus on real food. Yes. And that is a very form, like a formidable experience, I think, for you that kind of gets us to where you are now as a founder of A-Track Foods. And, you know, what it, what do you like to eat? Like, what's meaningful to you? If you're going to eat a plant-based meal, what is your preferred food? Well, I think the one thing that we kind of forgot in this whole plant-based movement is the first two parts of that, and that is whole food, plant-based mm-hmm. diet. And so going back to really helping people understand that it's not elimination diets that we're focused on. So it's not the absence of meat or the absence of dairy. It is about what we do put into our bodies. And so personally, um, my take is that whole food closer to the source is better for you. So Mm -hmm. that fundamentally is how we should eat. and according to my beliefs, it's not restructuring, not to say that any food is necessarily bad. It's saying let's, let's really just go back and fill our plates, you know, two thirds filled with like vegetables and fruit and grains Mm -hmm. and and beans. Whole food. (laughs) Whole food. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's really what we have to keep focusing on is our, our society truly loves elimination diets and everyone wants to know I like, know. Oh, this is, this is vegan or this is gluten-free, but there are so many things. And as a scientist, I could be fully transparent on that. We put a lot of things in your food that aren't necessarily great for your body. Yeah. I'm glad that you're willing to say that. Cause it's, I know that can be uncomfortable for people sometimes, but it is a real big wake up call. And when you look at all the amount of like venture money that's going into the IP behind these analog foods. And then if you bring them something that is a natural food, you know, they're like, oh, well, we're not interested in that because it's not revolutionary. And then we go, well, but it's not what we're free from that makes it amazing. It's what it's full of. And there's a paradigm shift that needs to happen in the food system where we really harness that concept of 
it's it's the quality, not the absence, like you said, that makes it so great because there's a lot. I would say that a huge portion of the unhealthy eating habits in our country are fueled by that kind of reductionistic thinking of chasing some extreme thing and then you fail at it and then you feel bad and then you go back to eating in the way that made you sick in the first place. Yeah. And I often, I often fear that if we, if we continue to use some of the messages that we're using around plant-based diets, that we're going to lose everybody in the end because everyone's going to think it's just a marketing gimmick and, mm-hmm. and that, but I think you bring up a lot of great points around that. I mean, it, not to dismiss what you said about funding. I think that's an interesting conversation and I'm not sure if you want to touch on it, but um, you know, I think that there's never been money in the food industry and, you know, now there's a lot of tech investors and things kind of looking for the next, you know, techie food. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I, I tried cautiously because I I mean, I helped build this industry. I mean, well, fairness, I I created a lot of these products, so I'm not throwing them under the bus. I think we just have to be really, mindful of how we talk about them. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point. That's one of the things that is so fascinating to me about you and your background is you actually do have the knowledge of both sides. And I find that most of the people who tend to get really evangelical about one side or the other, it's they often do have kind of a um, an absence of deep knowledge of how one side or the other operates. And I think that fuels that real kind of evangelical standpoint where they're you know, they're, they get, they love to just diss on the other side, but there's, there's a lot of value to both sides. And it's where that middle point rubs together is usually where the most opportunity is and the most holistic future is. Absolutely. Cause I often wondered, you know, I mean, I work in plant-based analogs and then I would work on clean label products, you know, where we we're doing pure and simple and you didn't really have that. They have to collide and they are at this point in time. They are. It's true. So let's talk about beans. <laughs> yeah. That's um, my favorite. <laughs> yeah. And, and beans are really an incredible crop. And you look at the history of the value of legumes in general in food systems around the world through the historical record, all the way back to like Neolithic founder crops. Um, it's interesting that they've been kind of like such a sideline sideshow for so long. And you're obviously very passionate about them. So if you could tell us about the founding of your company, 8-Track Foods, and why beans are so meaningful to you, given your complex background as a scientist. Yeah, so I think if I go back and kind of, you know, where I started on 8-Track Foods was, for me, this like strong disconnect that we were, and we have talked about that a little bit, this whole food plant-based diet. But one of the things I looked into early on, probably like about five years ago, is I started to do, um, I applied for a USDA research grant around aquafaba, which is that liquid that like mm-hmm. when you buy kind of chickpeas, it's that slimy liquid on the top. Um, in 2015, it was discovered that there was some functionality. So in 2016, I had applied for a federal research grant to get some knowledge base and some science behind it. Um, the USDA... Um, after going through that horrific process of writing a grant, um, the USDA did not believe that there was any value in the aquafaba as an egg replacement. Wow. And I had worked with the Food Institute and the U.S. Driving Council to kind of write the grant and get it out the door. But that all said, it I didn't have the funding to kind of push forward on, on what I did, wanted to do the research on. 
And so I decided that if I couldn't do it on a more global scale, then why don't I teach people how to do, use it? Mm-hmm. And that led me to start to find uh, local farmers and partners to do a line of premium organic canned beans. Awesome. And that's what track Foods is all about. And mm-hmm. at the time, everyone's like, why do we need to make a premium canned bean? Nobody's going to buy that. So I'm very proud of how far we've come to Yeah. So tell us about that. I mean, when I think that there's so much value in these like fundamental foundational food groups, to me, it's like the next frontier of, of innovation because they're kind of forgotten about, but they are the foundational staples of our entire food system. And, you know, to, to kind of, you know, evangelize for pulses, they play such a fundamental role in agriculture and in sustainable food systems. I mean, you cannot have a healthy, you know, row cropping agricultural ecosystem without, you know, robust rotations of legumes. And it can't just be soy all the time, you know, which has kind of been the gold standard in the Midwest. And we've got to bring back more biodiversity. So I love that you're, that you're focused on beans just in their whole, like natural form. (laughs) That's an incredible notion. Yeah. And I think when you think about canned beans, I mean, they are inevitably, you know, more convenient than, you know, just using dry beans. But focusing on beans for me, the U.S. Does a, doesn't incorporate beans really into their diet very heavily. Mm-hmm. You know, most other cultures, they are readily accepted. But here in the U.S., they're kind of treated like a cheap commodity or a side dish, like a baked bean, you know, at a party. But for the most part, when you tell people that, you know, you have a canned bean company. They're like, oh, I don't eat beans. <laughs> no, I don't eat beans. Yeah, and I'm like, look, crazy. maybe you do. Let me, let's go through this a little bit. And surprisingly, people are, are less, I mean, they're more open once you have the discussion with them. But there's, but just beans, beans, the magical fruit. The more you eat, the more you toot. I think that is yeah. the one thing that makes beans <laughs> hard for U.S. consumers to eat. Yeah. Um, their digestive tracts aren't used to eating them. I mean, you go around the world and people live on beans and it's not a thing, but our microbiome here is trained to just, you know, digest heavily processed carbohydrates, not the complex fiber rich ones. And that has created a, a, an issue with the American public because it's like you have to retrain your digestive system and your microbiome of how to cope with that. Right, right. And teaching consumers that you can do that and you can incorporate mm-hmm. beans and it's not something that's like a death sentence, you know. And then I always think mm-hmm. that's funny. I'm like, you know, they're like, we don't eat beans. I'm like, well, do you eat these plant-based alternatives? Because guess where they come from? <laughs> like, right. Yeah. So. They're eating highly processed beans instead of beans in their natural form. Okay. And um, yeah, it with your sourcing and your farmers, I'm, I'm interested because you are working with organics and you know, I think with the commoditization of beans, um, people don't realize actually how heavily treated with chemical inputs beans are. Um, you know, I, I know in our region, we grow a lot of lentil, we grow a lot of legumes in general in Eastern Washington and in Montana. And a lot of them are, they use glyphosate to, as a desiccant. So like at the end of the drying process, they're sprayed with Roundup to help kill off the foliage to make sure it dries out really well. And you know, I think that that's something that I'd like to see end. I don't think see that as a benefit to human health, although I can certainly understand the agronomic per- perspective of, you know, increasing the yield, et cetera. But 
you know, when I look at the health consequences, I, I don't want to be eating beans that have been doused in Roundup right before we eat it. So I'm glad that you're working with organic beans. But are you having trouble finding organic farmers? No. No, there's plenty of organic farmers, especially at the scale that we're at. Um, mm-hmm. There's plenty of organic farmers. I think they have to love the land and be willing to um, take the sacrifices that come along with organic farming. Um, I was in the industry, I, I show my age a little bit, but I was in the industry before organic was kind of federally regulated. Mm-hmm. And it can be an expensive process to be a federally regulated USD organic farm. So those mm-hmm. farmers truly, truly love their land. And most farmers want their land to be, you know, they care about their soil health because that's how they're making their living and their livelihood. So Mm -hmm. less of an extractive mindset um, for sure. I mean, the organic bean farmers I know are very, very passionate stewards of their land. And um, it's really been impressive watching them, um, you know, develop these farming systems that they were kind of ridiculed by their neighbors for early on. And then now their neighbors are looking at their farming systems and going, okay, you've got our attention. Like your farms are looking better than ours and your yields are comparable or higher than ours now. Um, As we've really seen the depletion of our, of our national soils reach a level where the promises of this high intensity chemical input farming model are now not delivering because of soil depletion. And we're putting the same amount of inputs, in fact, more, at a much higher cost, but we're still not seeing the ROI on our on our yields, unfortunately, in many, many areas because of the soil depletion. So um, the organic farmers are now, you know, having a different dialogue with their neighbors than they were, say, 10 years ago. That's so true. It's such a great point to bring up for the audience. Thank you for touching on that. I think a lot of people don't don't know that, um, you know, and I'd love to just step aside and talk about organics for a second in that regard that for so long, there's been this argument that we can't feed the, the world at scale using organic systems because we have to have the super high yield um, farming system in place. And But nobody really thought about the longevity of that high yield farming system and if there would ever be an, a point where it hits an exhaustion point where you just can't keep putting in inputs and getting the outputs out that have been promised for so long by these um, agrochemical systems. And I know a lot of our farmers, even the conventional ones, are reaching out to us because of this issue. Where they're, this is where they're like, "Uh oh, I you know spent the same amount of money. Actually, I spent twenty percent more on inputs last year, and my outputs were way reduced. So we're upside down financially. There's got to be a better way to do this, and that's why they're reaching out to people who are working in the regenerative movement because it's kind of like an in between." You know, you're right. not organic, but you're definitely not conventional and you're doing things to build your soil, which re- really reduces your inputs cost um, ultimately, which is getting a lot of farmers interested in that. It, what What are your thoughts on this? Just being somebody in the middle that owns a brand and, and is used to this whole value added processing landscape in the middle. Yeah, I mean, it's great to hear that um, more people are becoming aware I always tread lightly on the word regenerative because, oh, you know, regenerative agriculture, because I'm afraid it's going to be the new buzzword and people aren't going to understand that there is actually, you know, farming processes behind it. And it's not just, I see it already. People are putting it out packages and they don't even know what it means. Um, So I don't don't want to the greenwashing term, but. Mm -hmm. And it definitely is. It's definitely going there already. Yes. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, 
making sure that we understand the value behind soil health is and helping people make that connection between soil health and our climate is really important for me. And the more we can get people to understand around regenerative farming and, and what that practice means, I think as a movement, we'll be in, in a good space. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it is a process. I mean, I feel like regenerative right now is kind of like the wild west because it's not clearly defined. Yeah. There's a lot of different approaches. The word is buzzy suddenly. Yeah. So um, that's one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast is to just hit all these different things in the that all can get pulled into the regenerative concept because now regenerative as a term is leaving agriculture and getting put onto finance and food systems and social systems. And, you know, it's, it's kind of becoming that buzzy word. So I was like, well, let's create like an ethnography about this and talk to people that are working in the space and really trying to do it with integrity and with full understanding of the whole system beneath it. Like you are a food scientist. So you have a very deep knowledge of what that means from a science perspective and from a, you know, agricultural perspective, not as a farmer, but as someone who's, you know, done sourcing and made foods out of, out of crops for many, many decades. It's a different perspective. It is a different perspective. And that's a good point to bring up too. It's like when you're sourcing things, like making sure that all those little, I'm the one that's making sure those little boxes check that you can call it vegan or you can call it organic or Mm -hmm. regenerative agriculture without breaking the law. Um, and so I do, I love what you're bringing to the table and sharing this information. Yeah. The more we talk about it and I think really openly, the, the, the quicker we'll be able to really kind of refine what the, what the key critical components are, um, that can make this term leave just agricultural systems and, but still have like a root in agricultural systems that is high integrity and, and authentic. And, um, you know, it's it's going to be interesting because, of course, any time that there's something that's buzzy, there's going to be a lot of opportunistic people that just see it for financial gain. And um, and that can be a really dangerous thing that can and has shaped our food system in the past, as you've seen with plant based, too. Right. There's some parallels there. There are some parallels. I mean, and I think you bring up a good point around financial gain. So it's just making sure that we can keep the movement going forward and not just, you know around helping the planet rather than just helping our pocketbooks. Yes. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. So, you know, with the sustainable sourcing and and how you guys do that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your model. And you mentioned it, that you're working with organic farmers. I mean, you're a startup. I'm a startup. So I understand it. It does make it easier for us because we're smaller. Like we can, we don't need, we don't need 20 train loads to make our supply chain work today, but we but we very likely will in a few years. So how, how are it, you as a CEO and you as a founder, how are you setting up your company's sourcing to create that scalable story while still maintaining great quality, um, sustainable sourcing programs? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good question. So at this point in time, we did make the conscious decision to go with co-ops and be able to not just isolate and source from, you know, we have mm-hmm. the relationship with the farmers, but not just have one relationship because you could yeah. just throw your supply chain, you know, yeah. as any farmer it can be very you, risky. Yeah. Right, as any farmer will tell you, it's not yours until it goes into the truck. So, you know, there's a chance always in the very end that they could lose their crop. So making sure that you always have, you know, a number of different um, farmers mm-hmm. working for you is, is important to keep that going. 
as I see, you know, us growing, we will bring in more. Um, the U.S. is a great, a great place for growing beans. We just have to sh- kind of show the demand for other beans. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of research going on about what other crops we can grow here. So as demand increases, right now we do, we export a lot of our beans to other countries. So mm-hmm. if there's a demand here, we'll be able to, you know, source from here as well. Tell us a little bit about your actual product line. How many bean types are you working with and what are they? So, yes, we started with a black bean, a dark red kidney bean, and our chickpea, our blonde chickpea. And Mm -hmm. we added the white cannellini bean, which is like the white kidney bean, in January of this year. And so, cool. So, yes, it's still very simple and basic, but they are delicious and creamy. (laughs) Yeah. So, I, I was one of those people at a certain point in my life when I had a little bit more time that I would can my own beans because oh, wow. I just liked them better. Like, and they were in glass, which oh, I liked yeah. and you know, and, and then I could adjust the cook time. So like a lot of the times I would use a chickpea or garbanzo, I was, I was going to make hummus out of it. So I just adjusted my pressure cooking time. So that way they'd be really soft mm-hmm. and it would make it super easy just to turn, you know, throw them in the blender and boom, you had hummus where, a lot of times I would buy canned beans and they were still kind of crunchy, which might be good for certain applications, like if you're throwing it in soup, but definitely not good for making hummus. And so, you know, I think that like I had kind of an early education in the, the nuances of what makes a really great bean. And, I, and a lot of people don't think about that. When you guys are developing your canning process, like what are you thinking about with, when it comes to culinary application? So it's always interesting when people say that, like it's, how many decisions go into, and you can attest to this, go into actually making a product. So when mm-hmm. you, you have to think about which bean you're going to select, you have to think about how long you're going to cook it, how much, what ingredients do you want to have? Where do you want to source them? So what experience do you want that consumer to have in the end? And so all of those little details, and that's just for a can of beans that has three ingredients, you know, when you have yeah. a lot more, um, products, those decisions kind of get larger. And it could be everything of like, how are they going to use it in the end? You know, how many people told me like, oh, you need to have a pop top. I'm like, well, every mom has a can opener. Like, they don't even have <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, is that going to be something that really drives the choice <laughs> of the consumer at the point of purchase? I, those are those little things that, you know, until you own a food business, like you don't really realize all those little tiny details. Like, how do you do your branding so that people realize you're different from like just the private label being next door that's 50 cents cheaper? Like, I yes. would love to talk about that a little bit because you have made that jump from science person and, you know, definitely had your feet in marketing, but now owning a brand and making those decisions of how you're going to differentiate yourself on the shelf. Yeah, that's what I mean, that's a, and you're there, you're in the trenches too with your own brand, but you know, oh all of those gosh. decisions yeah. are are expensive. I mean, in, in a lot of places, I mean, I've worked with large food companies. I have the experience, but when it was somebody else's budget, it's not as scary. You know, it's like, oh, well, if we, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's a label or the logo, That's for is sure. a little bit off. you know, you, you have to do a reprint. It's not like the death of you and your financial business. So when you're making mm-hmm. those decisions and proofing your labels and making sure you're the one flitting, you know, flipping the bill for that giant expense to do a packaging mm-hmm. run. And so yep. it's 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 very different perspective when you are the one holding, you know, the purse. And yeah, the responsibility so. there. 
Yeah. And speaking of branding, I would love to hear about how you named your, your company. What does eight track foods mean? What's the symbolism behind that? So eight track foods is, I wanted it to represent this like infinite loop of sustainability. And so the eight is meant to kind of be from beginning to end it's closed. You know, the system is closed. So everything we do really gives back to itself. And, you know, even the can gives is curbside recyclable and is magnetic. So it can get reclaimed in any um, waste stream. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the beans get nitrogen back to the soil. So those things that are really important and, you know, all pantry goods are really good for the environment on so many levels because, you know, many people had, you know, basements or cellars where they would store their goods, you know, through the winter, um, being mm-hmm. able to get and process our foods this way really helps cut down on food waste because, you know, most American households point good portion of their food with, you know, you go to the grocery store, you have all these great intentions of like making these awesome meals and then Mm -hmm. life gets in the way and you end up throwing away half your food at the end of the week because you didn't, didn't really have time to prepare it. But with your, that's such a good point. Yeah. But with your, I'm glad you're talking about this. (laughs) Just saying, this is great. It's just, I mean, it's going very on. passionate about it. Yeah. I mean, just, and you can go into your pantry and, you know, our ancestor did it forever. Just use your pantry to create, you know, fresh and sustainable meals. And mm-hmm. so that's part of the brand's mission is really to cut down on food waste and plastic packaging. And we're starting with canned beans, but there's a, there's a much larger vision coming outside of this brain. <laughs> very cool. Well, I, I agree with you there that like the pantry has been, so shunned in the last 10 years and we've had this massive shift to all this fresh food which i understand i mean that's there i love fresh fruits and vegetables as well i do eat them even out of season i admit it because i i just feel better when i when i eat those kind of foods and i live in idaho so if this 100 years ago i would not be eating like this because i would be eating pantry staples dried beans grains and whatever meat we could get a hand our hands on and whatever was canned or dried. And when you think about how our food system has changed so, so dramatically, and it has really increased that food waste footprint and the carbon footprint when you're carting in fresh food from across the world to eat it out of season. I know that there's a lot of people who claim that that's the best way to eat. But when you take a few steps back and you look at the greater global footprint on our whole planet, it makes you really reconsider where, where the value is in your food. Like, okay, would I be good just eating, making beans part of my meal? This is a low carbon footprint. It doesn't, it's not perishable. It's if I buy it today, I could eat it eight months from now and it's still going to be perfectly good. And like, where is that wellness um, value assignment in the greater picture of food systems from that perspective? It's a totally different way of looking at things. And that's really why I started the company was because, you know, looking at all of these things that we could really solve, I mean, it is kind of comical when I would go like through and everyone would ask me to develop products. Like we want this to be, you know, low carbon footprint and, you know, low waste and all of, you know, organic and regenerative agriculture. All I kept thinking was it's really a can of beans because it is that way that we can be able, if we can really teach people how to use their pantry and source local food, you know, we can can that local food and create a more sustainable process. 
Yeah, we can really revolutionize the food system with that thinking for sure. You and I are definitely aligned in that way where I'm like, we've got to reassign value to our pantry staples as a society or we're going to eat ourselves into extinction really fast. Sorry, keto paleo people, but like you can't (laughs) feed a world like that, not on a global sustainable perspective. Like it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Um, Unfortunately, I mean, it'd be cool if it did, but it just, we're up against some things that we do have to get very real about. So I, I love the work that you're doing. But, you know, it's you, you think about right now with the looming food shortages, too, um, with everything happening post-COVID with disruptive supply chain issues. And then now with the war in Ukraine, um, also creating a ripple effect around the world of potential food scarcity. I think there's never been a, a more appropriate time for us to really, really get real about our pantry staples and thinking about how we can have nutritious, healthy foods that don't require refrigeration or can can be good for several seasons. So if you do have a bad year, you have surplus. Like there's a reason our great grandparents ate like that. So like, I mean, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. I think now is the time to really help educate consumers because the one thing that we haven't really talked about is so much of Americans pantry is a lot of highly processed foods. And Mm so I think when people say like, the pantry is bad. It's because it's filled with, you know, corn, <laughs> processed corn and processed, yeah. really processed, crazy food. When you think yeah, about cookies, it, it's not really you know, food. It's, it's formerly known as food. food. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and part of that is just making sure that we can have, you know, we're able to feed people and there's food at every level of income. But at the same token, I think there's a lot of ways that we can bring value back to the pantry with whole, whole foods. And I think you're I agree. spot on with that. Yeah. And it, it to me, like because I like to take that word regenerative and be like, how can we apply it to other systems while keeping that authentic view of what regenerative actually means? And you know, it's part of partly this whole regenerative by design concept. I'm like, how can we invite people into thinking through a regenerative lens and looking at different things that make our food system tick from a health perspective, from a, you know, like a sustainability long-term resiliency impact piece and i i feel like right now is a really important time for us to apply that regenerative by design thinking to pantry like how do we re-establish a healthier pantry so that we have resiliency like if you know with the empty shelves that happened during covid the people who had a good pantry didn't really sweat that so much um it wasn't as scary when you have food in your closet a lot of people can't do that from a financial perspective but a lot of people who even can afford it didn't like they just realized all they had in their pantry was a bunch of like peanut butter stuff, cheesy wafer <laughs> crackers or something, you know, like, like if you're looking at not having food for a few weeks, that is not what you want to just have in the pantry. <laughs> no, you had a, something a little bit more substantial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I know a number of people who are like, that's the only thing I really have in my pantry is like those cheesy, those <laughs> cheesy crackers with peanut butter in the middle. I'm like, Oh my God, of all the foods to be reliant on that is like, the last thing I would want to be like my last <laughs> meal, that is not going to be it. I'll tell you that. Um, I take a can of beans any day. <laughs> so as far as action items, like how can people, how can people put this into action? Like what are things that you wish people would do out there to make this vision of the world come to life? I mean, a lot of times they're simple things. Yeah. And I think eating beans. Are, yeah. Eating beans. That is number one. Eating locally grown <laughs> sustainable beans. My eight track food yeah. would probably be the one place to start. 
know, I'm, I think the best way to really help, I think it's overwhelming. I mean, there is so much information for consumers. I study this for a mm-hmm. living. I get overwhelmed by the number of things that are going on. And I think for consumers and most people in general, they just shut down. And they're just mm-hmm. like, it's too hard to understand. It's too confusing. I'm not even sure what they're talking about. So I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. So for me to say, really just take one little thing and make a difference. Um, Make one simple step change in your diet to focus on what's sustainable. And and that could be as simple as, you know, taking half the meat out of your dinner and putting in half beans because that little bit is going to help all of us in the end. And if everyone did that, we would, you know, definitely move Mm -hmm. in the right directions. So we're such a black and white society that we want it to be like, yeah, be all over here or all over here. But um, that middle ground and really helping consumers understand that that's okay. Um, You don't have to be a hundred percent, just make little step changes. And that's, if we all did that, we're in a good space. Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. It, Baby steps, if everybody taking baby steps adds up to a lot more than a few people being perfect. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. That's awesome. And what, what gives you hope right now when you look at the future and you look at everything that you're doing as a founder and um, as a human? And I think you're you and I are the same age. Like I'm I have a different view of the world than I did when I was in my 20s. Like I, I'm really looking at the future in a very different way. What is giving you hope right now? I think the hope is actually seeing the younger generation kind of understanding that it isn't that they're embracing a lot of things that I didn't even think about when I was their age, like eating for longevity and uh, processes that I just didn't even wrap my head around. So I feel like kids have a stronger sense of food and knowledge base and even social media platforms have made them kind of many chefs in that space. Um, yeah. So there's, I have a lot of hope that we will all kind of rally together to make a big difference and, and work together. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing is really to get us all as a food industry to work in one direction rather than competing against each other. We're all up against the same odds mm-hmm. and it's not about who's going to make the most money. Yeah. You and I have talked about that a lot, like that radical collaboration concept. It's like, you know, there's there's the old conventional concept of like, oh, we're fighting over this little slice of the pie. And then there's like all of us that are like, let's just grow the pie. <laughs> there's there's plenty of opportunity and we can work together to actually create a much better world if we work together to make it happen. Yeah, it's like what the natural food industry started as. It was like we were a natural food movement and we we're all working towards the same goal. And mm-hmm. I think that still exists. I think we're all in it um, just not to be distracted, I guess, by the dollar signs. Yeah, right. It's like we're all for profit companies and you can be profitable while still doing really amazing things for the world. That's yeah. a, that's a paradigm shifter, too. It's like, you know, doing good can be financially beneficial, but it's going to be your decision making is going to be different. It's like, yes, we're a for profit company. But yes, like people making decisions that benefit people and making decisions that benefit the planet are all equally like considered because they're all equally important. Absolutely. That's the future. Yeah, I agree. How, how can people find out more about you? Like if they want to, if they want to find out more about you as a person, if they want to find out more about your company, 8-Track Foods, where are the best places for people to go? 
Yeah. So I would say, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn is, is the best way to learn more about me. And it's just Maggie Sadowski. And you can learn more about our company at 8trackfoods.com. Yeah. LinkedIn, mm-hmm. if you, cool. you know, private message me, you can always get information there. And we have a, a really robust um, Instagram page, too, if you want to learn more about recipes and our mission. Beautiful. We'll make sure to put those in the show notes. So thanks for joining us today. It's been really fun getting to talk about all kinds of topics today. I There were so many things I wanted to ask you. I was like, let's just really let this be more of a free form conversation where we can chase all kinds of topics all over the place. So thank you for doing that with me. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we didn't bounce too much, but I appreciate you having me on the show and always a pleasure speaking with you. Beautiful. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.